Thank you for speaking with me, young man. I appreciate it. Young man, huh? Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the celebrated and decorated Steinway artist and composer, Ahmed Jamal. He spoke to me from his home. Mr. Jamal, you have referred to jazz as American classical music. Can you talk about that term and talk about where you feel jazz is today? I get that question uh, quite often. And uh, there are many descriptions in a dictionary that refer to the word jazz have nothing to do with music, nothing. It's American classical music as opposed to European classical music. And uh, that's what it is. It's been recognized as one of the most powerful art forms in the world. And I'm not uh, paranoid about the term j- jazz, but it doesn't really define what Duke Ellington was. Uh, jazz ill defines what we do. You have Art Tatum and, and myself and Dave Brubeck and Herbie Hancock. And uh, uh, there are many definitions in the dictionary that refer to jazz. And some of them are. Nowhere near music. Some of them are actually an insult. But it ill defines what we do. We're American classicists. That's what we are. Just like you have European classical music, you have American classical music. Duke Ellington is a part of the American classical music. And I could go on and speak volume, but the term jazz is very offensive to me. But uh, what we've done, we've sophisticated, uh, unsophisticated word. That's what we've done. I see. So you're saying that you have taken the American vernacular and you have sophisticated it. I haven't. All of us have. <laughs> <laughs> All of you together. It's a collective effort. Yeah, I learned from Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, Art Tatum. Uh, I'm, I'm a newcomer compared to them. Okay, let's take those names you just mentioned. Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn, Art Tatum. I know you're also a fan of Errol Garner. Horace Silver, Miles Davis, probably a lot of other cats. I would be interested to hear what epiphanies you received from whom among your predecessors and your contemporaries. Well, I not only learned from pianists, I learned from saxophonists as well. Ben Webster uh, was a very big influence upon me. He was a premier uh, scholar when it came to saxophone. I also take from trumpet players, Roy Elders from my home. He's from Pittsburgh as well as Aragona. So I don't only learn from pianos. I glean from all the instruments. In fact, I uh, was going to study cello for a while. But the fact is, uh, uh, these people paved the way for me. They were American classicists, as far as I'm concerned. Tell me about this brush with the cello that you had. It didn't last long. (laughs) (laughs) The piano is very demanding. Even today, it's very demanding. One is enough for me. I got you. So this encounter with the cello came after you were deep into piano already. That's correct. You clearly have an appreciation for the cello, and I imagine for the upright bass, it's big brother. No, for for all instruments, not just one. They all play a very important role. 
as uh, uh, Maurice Ravel <laughs> describes in his Bolero and all his other works, all the instruments are functional and, and very important. I just chose piano. In fact, I didn't choose piano. Piano chose me. You don't make conscious decisions at three years old. You got in early at the age of three. That took a long time to decide. <laughs> you came up in the age of bebop, but when I hear your music, I think of the way that you use space. And that's a hard thing to quantify. Your ease at handling space, which includes not having to fill it all the time, is for me something that makes you unique. Well, it's part of my personality, my musical personality. Uh, there is a, such a th- is such a thing as rest in music. There are a lot of rest in European classical music as well as American classical music. Sometimes you have to pay attention to the rests in music, and you don't play anything. Whether it's an orchestral effect or a small ensemble, you have to rest sometimes. There's a space for notes and space for rest. You have to know how to utilize both if you're going to be successful. follow-up to that. The hip-hop community loves to sample Ahmed Jamal, and I think that's due to a combination of the way you use space and your groove. Do you feel you're in any way a hip-hop influencer or pioneer? Why don't you try and help me collect the money that's owed to me? <laughs> <laughs> Those checks. With, with the hip-hoppers and the rappers, I'm working on that right now. I'm the, one of the most sample musicians in the world. Yes, you are. And certainly one of the most underpaid. We have a process we're doing now. I have lawyers, doctors, and Indian chiefs trying to collect my money. (laughs) Well, I hope you get it because those grooves are worth it. But tell me, this combination of groove and space, I think that's what pulled you into the hip-hop world among those rappers that you're trying to get paid by. You think that's fair? My foundation, all my uh, approach to music, comes from a place called Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, Earl Garner started at three. He was going to the same elementary school as me, as well as the high school, Dodo Mamarosa, whom the world has forgotten. And I could go on and on. We have an inexhaustible list of artists that come from uh, Pittsburgh. So that's where I got all my approach to music, from Pittsburgh. So it sounds like for you, the foundation was Earl Garner. What did you learn from Garner? Well, he was one of my influences. I have uh, several influences, Art Tatum, Nat Cole. Nat Cole is, uh, was a fine pianist, and as demonstrated by all of us who pattern our small ensembles after uh, Nat Cole, be it Oscar Peterson or me or whoever it was. But Earl Garner was my most uh, uh, profound influence. But what did you take from him? What did you take that became your basis and formation? He was an orchestra. And if, if you listen to uh, my approach ensemble, I have an orchestral approach. That's what I learned from Earl Garner. 
He was an or- orchestra unto himself. When you say you have an orchestral approach, tell me what that means. I think in terms of, of, of large ensembles all the time. I have an orchestra in my head every day, spinning around in my head, and uh, uh, I'm approaching uh, uh, the ripe old age of 90. I still have orchestras in my head every day. I still have music. That's been uh, all of my life. That's why I have an orchestral approach. I think orchestrally. So you treat the piano as an orchestra? That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You treat your ensemble as a larger orchestra? That's correct. I would say you were born to lead. You lead a lot of ensembles. You're not such a sideman. How do you lead from the keyboard? How do you lead from the Steinway? Well, the fact is, music chose me. I didn't choose the piano, it chose me. As I said before, you don't make conscious decisions at three years old. So music chose me, and, uh, and my approach to music also continues to choose me and what I do orchestrally and a small ensemble. I've, I've, I've worked with the uh, Cleveland Pops with 80 pieces, with eight pieces, with nine pieces. In Saul in Paris, I had eight pieces on stage. So I work in various configurations, small, large. I've done it all. I grew up in orchestral work. In Pittsburgh, I played with 17, 18 pieces nightly. And I left home and joined George Hudson's orchestra. And Clark Terry was a member. He had left George Hudson at that time. But George Hudson's orchestra was what took me away from my happy home. So I lived, I lived in orchestra musically all my life. Does your approach change depending on the size of the ensemble? Or are there certain truths that always hold regardless? I still conduct whether I have one piece or, or, or duos, sextets, big ensembles, small ensembles. It has to be conducted. If, if you watch some of my uh, uh, concerts, I don't know, if have you ever seen any of my concerts? Yes, sir. Well, you'll see me conducting. <laughs> Everything has to be conducted, whether it's small or large. So you're the point man, regardless of who or how many folks are on stage. I'm the conductor. How much influence do you have as a conductor? How much control are you looking to exert? How do you strike a balance between letting people do their thing and reining them in? Well, first of all, the wonderful people that work with me are masters also. So the chemistry is always wonderful. I don't have to force anything. They are master musicians, beginning with Israel Crosby and Vernel Fournier. Israel was the first man, uh, the first bassist to win the so-called Downbeat Award as bassist. He was working with Gene Krupa. I was a member of his ensemble when I went to Chicago. I was later fortunate to get him as my bassist. So all the people I have, have are master musicians. I don't have to do too much dictating. They uh, are completely synchronized with me. And does that synchronization just come from playing together? It's impossible to be that cohesive if you're not working together on a uh, permanent basis. When you started in your career, of course, you were playing more standards, and that naturally shifted into more originals. How would you approach a standard? All of us play standards. That's the American songbook. You would know nothing about John Coltrane if he didn't. Yes, he has other compositions, but what made John Coltrane was my favorite things. That's a standard. That's from the American songbook. This is a remarkable thing of 
interpreting the American songbook beyond the wildest dreams of, of its composers. That's what we've done. Be it Earl Garner, me, Herbie Hancock, John Coltrane, doesn't matter. We all have interpreted these standards beyond the wildest dreams of its composers. That's what makes this influence so profound. When you sit down to play a standard, what are you thinking about? What are the priorities? What are you trying to bring to the table when you approach a standard that everybody presumably already knows? First of all, as Ben Webster uh, says, you have to try and understand the lyrics as well. Ben Webster was playing a very, very beautiful ballad some years ago when he was still on this earth, and suddenly he stopped. You've heard this story. This is Ben Webster, one of my favorite players and one of my great influences. And suddenly he stopped in the middle of this wonderful reading of this ballad. What did he say? Stopped him? He forgot the lyrics. That says something, doesn't it? It says a lot. To me, and you tell me what else it says, to me it says that he had to have the imagery in mind of those lyrics in order to fully express that song. Well, first of all, I was playing with gentlemen, musicians five times my age when I was 10 years old because I knew the repertoire. And everything depends on the repertoire you project. Whether you're playing American classical music or European classical music, everything depends on the repertoire. So I, I knew the repertoire at 10 years old. I knew songs that were written way before I was born. And one of the classic recordings of Poinciana written by, uh, not mine, that wasn't mine, but we made it famous because of our interpretation of same. So I knew the repertoire. And everything depends on the repertoire that one possesses. Expand that a little bit for me. What was it that you did to that song that made it pop? Because it's true. We think of you now when we think of that song. How were you able to claim it? 73 versions of At the Persian that included Poinciana. First of all, I did what was impossible in those days. No one was playing a seven-minute, 35-second record. Nobody. Only three minutes, four minutes. That record is seven minutes, 35 seconds long. You're not going to get any airplay. I got all the airplay I wanted and more. It's in the Bridges of Madison County by one Clint Eastwood. He uses two of my tracks from the Persian, Music, 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 and Poinciana. It's as strong today as it was in 1958. There's no such thing as old music. It's either good or bad. So it's not old. It's a baby compared to Mozart. Okay? It's a baby. 1958, of course, is still a baby compared to Mozart and Beethoven and on and on. First of all, the song has to have a great attraction for me. I have to like it first. And if I like it and, and uh, do something with it, I may get one or two more enlisted. But first of all, I have to like it first. You have to enjoy what you're doing. First of all, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, how can you project to others? 
So everything I do standard-wise, I'm not doing it because I want to get an audience. I do it for me, for Ahmed Jamal. That's number one, numero uno. I have to embrace a song or composition, whether it's by Maurice Varel or Duke or Billy Strohan, because I like it. I'm not doing it to attract listeners. As a result of that format, I have one or two listeners on this earth, maybe more. Because first of all, I have to enjoy what I embrace as a, a composition, including my own. I have to embrace it myself. As I said before, not to be redundant. Maybe I'll get some other listeners, maybe. But first of all, I have to love it myself. That's the first thing. And foremost, as far as I'm concerned. Then what? You have a piece. You love it. It's in your heart and soul. What are you trying to do with it? Then I make arrangements. I've been writing since I was 10 years old. Ensembles that I have performed with, we all have written music from yours truly. I wrote for my small ensembles every part. And then the improvisation is left to the skill of my players. I've been writing uh, all my life. I still write. So that's standards. Now, what about when you're crafting an original tune? What's the process there for you? Well, the process is (laughs) you don't create anything, my friend, if I may. You may. We can't create a, a gnat or a fly or a mosquito. We can reflect creativity, but we can't create. So we have to depend on being in tune with the forces around you in order to do one thing, receive. I don't care if you're a doctor, salt vaccine, insulin. All those things were done by people who were in tune with the forces around them. And they were able to reflect creativity and create a composition or a wonderful uh, medicine and on and on. So we, we don't create anything. We have to rely on being inspired. Very well. I'll take that. So how do you make sure that inspiration comes? How can you encourage that inspiration? You have to try and be in tune with with your surroundings and life itself. Once you're not in tune, it becomes a negative. You have to have a positive approach to life. And uh, that's very difficult. And another thing, there's no gain without pain. (laughs) (laughs) You may be a person who doesn't have any problem with learning. But most of us, the learning process comes with a little pain as well. What was that pain for you? Was it Life itself. Life itself. You have to deal with life. I don't care if you're a Gershwin or Ravel or Debussy or Duke Ellington or yourself or whatever. You have to deal with life itself. You have to be in tune with the forces around you. Otherwise, you're not, you're not going to come up with anything. Life's difficulties gave you that gain. That's correct. Look at the life of Charlie Parker. Sure. He was one of the great revolutionaries, him and Dizzy Gillespie. Charlie Parker changed much of the musical horizon that we experience today. And he died at what age? 34, 35? Mm -hmm. He had a lot of pain. Fats Navarro, Bud Powell, Art Tatum died very young. And unfortunately, that happens to some of our great purveyors of this music, whether it's European classical or American classical music, purveyors of this music, some of them suffered a lot of pain. Emil Zola, who wrote Nana, a great French writer. Have you heard of Emil Zola? Yes, sir. 
He suffered a lot of pain. But what happened? He came out with monumental writing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be quoting him today. I didn't know Emmy Zola, but I know of his work, and I know his background was one of great pain. If you look back for a moment with me about what you've done musically, what do you see or what do you hope has been your greatest contribution to American classical music? You know, uh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. People ask me, uh, uh, what's your favorite record? I say the next one. I like to go forward. I don't like to go backward. I don't think about past accomplishments too much. Looking forward, what do you still hope to learn? What are you still hoping to discover? One word, peace. P-E-A-C-E, peace. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. Very, very important for all of us now with the viruses and this thing and that thing. Peace. That's what I want to discover. That's what I am looking for every day when I wake up. With peace, you, you can do many things. Without it, you can't do one thing but mess up. I don't think I can follow that. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's my pleasure to stay well. Stay safe. The words are yours, sir, but the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from the Ahmed Jamal Trio performing Poinciana from At the Pershing, But Not For Me on Chess Records, and I Love Music from The Awakening on Impulse. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.